0: Rockefeller kind of had a cloud hanging over him over his usually sunny facade and today however that seemed to be looking up and he seemed to be in a much better mood and that was because he was going to spend the day with his adorable daughter Ray a precious precocious seven-year-old who also affectionately referred to as Snooks. This morning a Sunday he put on his customary uniform well-worn khakis, a sky-blue Lacoste shirt with the crocodile embroidered over the heart, and his top-sider boat shoes, as always, without socks, and a red baseball cap emblazoned with the word you. He adjusted his heavy black frame glasses, which some people thought brought Nelson Rockefeller to mind, and proceeded from his room down a wide wooden stairway. As he got to the lobby, with its imposing staircase in polished leather, Snooks was waiting for him, along with the clinical social worker who was to chaperone their eight-hour visit. Even though Rockefeller's ex-wife, Sandra, was just a few blocks away, she had followed a court order to ferry the child through a social worker. Hi, Daddy, Snooks exclaimed, rushing over to hug him. She was small for seven, with a blonde page boy haircut and a crooked smile, wearing a sundress. Around noon, Rockefeller hoisted her on his shoulders and started walking towards Boston Common where they talked about riding the swan boats in the public garden. Good morning, Mr. Rockefeller, people said as he passed, and he was well known in the Beacon Hill neighborhood, having lived there for years in a four-story, ivy-covered $2.7 million townhouse on one of the best streets in the city. That was, of course, before Sandra had dragged him through a painful and humiliating divorce, taking not only the Beacon Hill house, but also their second home in New Hampshire. She had also won custody of Snooks and moved her all the way to London where she now worked, leaving him with only three court supervised eight hour visits per year. Today would be the first and his daughter had been accompanied by Howard Yaff, the social worker who was tagging behind them like a creaky third wheel. But Clark still had his name, his intelligence and an extraordinary art collection that was valued at close to a billion dollars. So while he had lost Snooks, He'd gotten $800,000 in the divorce settlement, and today his adored and beloved Snooks was back with him, albeit for a short time. As he turned the corner onto Marlborough Street, the tree treeline avenue where Teddy Kennedy once kept residence, a black SUV was parked on the curb far down the block. Behind the wheel was Daryl Hopkins, a down-on-his-luck limo driver who had had the good fortune to pick up Clark Rockefeller in the rain one day. He had been driving through downtown Boston the previous summer when he spotted the dignified gent soaking wet and dressed as if he had just been sailing, attempting to flag down a cab. Hopkins screeched to a stop and offered him a lift. Since then, Hopkins and his distinguished passenger had become something of a team. Rockefeller didn't have a driver's license but always seemed to have somewhere he needed to go and Hopkins was more than happy to provide wheels for him. Today was a bit unusual. Rockefeller had told Hopkins that he and Snooks had a sailing date in Newport with the son of Lincoln Chaffee, the former Rhode Island Senator who was known to be a quote, Rockefeller Republican. But he said he had a problem. A clingy family friend he would have to ditch before they got in the limousine. He offered $2,500 for Hopkins' help. Shortly afternoon, Hopkins was parked on Marlborough Street when he saw them strolling towards the limo, a short three-person parade, Rockefeller with Snooks on his shoulders, trailed by a compact middle-aged man wearing jeans and a bright yellow polo shirt. As they approached the vehicle, Rockefeller put Snooks down and stopped to point out one of the streets' particularly stunning historic homes. When Yaffe turned to look at the building, the scion of the famous family tackled him with a body block that slammed the social worker to the ground. Hopkins had already started the engine when Rockefeller snatched open the back door yelled, get in, to his daughter as he shoved her onto the seat with such force that the doll she had been carrying flew out of her hands and leaped in after her. A few hours later, Sandra, waiting to hear back from the results of this eight-hour visit that he was allowed to have with their daughter, found that her ex-husband had disappeared with their daughter. At the same time, Boston police were entering Rockefeller's name into national databases and, well, finding nothing Can you please give us his driver's license number? An officer asked Sandra Boss. She said she didn't have one. He didn't have one. Do you know if Clark has a social security number? No, she replied. Is he on your tax returns? No. His credit cards were on her accounts. His cell phone number was under the name of a friend. To each of the investigators' questions about her ex-husband's identification papers, Boss responded in the negative. He didn't have any identification at all. 24 hours after his disappearance, the curious case of Clark Rockefeller was being handled by Special Agent Noreen Gleason, a tough blonde and a 17-year veteran of the FBI assigned to the Boston field office. Her first call was to the Rockefeller family, she remembers. They said, quote, "Under under no circumstances is there a link. We are not connected. So it turns out that Clark Rockefeller wasn't Clark Rockefeller at all. And by taking his daughter and disappearing with her, he launched a manhunt that would span the globe, unearth all of his aliases and all of the things he had been or pretended to be, and found out that he's also a murderer. So today we cover the story of a Rockefeller who really isn't and what it takes to charm that many people into thinking that you are all of these aliases when you really aren't. And the thing about it is, is that Clark Rockefeller was really, really, really good at it. For three decades, the man that was born as Christian Carl Geistreiter claimed to be someone else. He had posed as a British Baronet, a cardiologist in Las Vegas, a Hollywood producer, a bond broker in New York, and then family, and then finally, of course, a member of the famous Rockefeller family. And by taking Snooks on that Sunday in 2007, he set in motion the events that would make his con fall apart. You are now tuned in to Murder V Wrote. I'm your host, V. we're back in our first episode of February. I told you it would be out um, on Tuesday, so sorry about that. Today is Thursday night, um, but it's out, and I'm so glad you're here with me. Um, as the one white person, we're going to cover during Black History Month uh, <laughs> on this show, but glad you're here with me regardless. Um, so, for those of you that are listening or didn't miss or miss the intro, we are talking about. Um, Christian Karl um, or as you may have heard in the intro, he was going by the name Clark Rockefeller. Um, so I guess in order to cover what he did, we would kind of have to start from the beginning. So when Snooks is kidnapped by Clark, because he has many, many names, but we'll call him Clark for the sake of the story, because we're going to go through all of them. Um, The only thing they could really find on him is that the night before he had been with a friend and they had been drinking and he had a wine glass. Well, the friend had not washed this wine glass yet. And so it was taken from um, the friend and sent to the FBI lab in Quantico to try to get prints off of it. So as the prints were being analyzed, the Bureau, in hopes that someone might recognize him, released pictures to the media and after that, a carefully constructed identity or a lifetime of carefully constructed identities begin emerging. Some people knew him as Chris Gerhardt, a University of Wisconsin film student. Others said he was Christopher Chichester, a descendant of British royalty. Some remembered him as Christopher C. Crow, a TV producer um, who had worked for at least three walls wall street investment firms in the light in the late 1980s and then there were of course scores of people who knew him as clark rockefeller the scion of industry whose friends included important artists and writers and members of prestigious private clubs so they're looking for this person and they know that he's kidnapped a child and they really don't know what else so when the results come back from the print lab one thing became immediately clear The person that Sandra Boss had married and had snooks with was not Clark Rockefeller. He's not a Rockefeller at all. His name was Christian Karl Gartstrider, and he was a 47-year-old German immigrant who had come to America as a student in 1978 and who had disappeared into a complicated existence that the Boston district attorney would call, quote, the longest con I've seen in my professional career. Once Rockefeller's flight hit the headlines, reporters joined the manhunt in order to discover who the suspect was and where he had gone. So our story begins in Bergen, Germany, a small resort town in the Bavarian Alps where Christian grew up, a misfit where no one had heard from him in 30 years. He was a short, skinny, fantasy-obsessed boy. His father was a house painter and an amateur artist, and his mother was a seamstress. Everyone that they spoke to regarding Chris. Regarding him, remembered him to be kind of, you know, a, a boy with big plans and fantasies and no way to make them come true. On a on a train trip, he met and charmed a family from America who told him that if he was ever in the United States, he should look them up, um, which is probably something you should never do. And I think that people don't do that now, but maybe in the late 70s, early 80s, it was a thing you did, right? You talked to somebody, had a great conversation. You didn't, you just said, hey, if you're ever in town, look me up. I don't think that's a thing people do now because, well, murder. <laughs> um, so seeking a fresh start in a new country, uh, he did just that. He appeared on their doorstep unannounced in Meridian, in Meridian Connecticut in 1978. And after living with them for a short time, he posted for a short time he posted an ad in a local neighborhood in a local paper for lodging, and eventually landed with the Savio family in nearby Berlin, Connecticut. He said he was an exchange student and he was going to finish high school in the states, says the oldest son, Edward Savio, who is now a San Francisco-based screenwriter and novelist. Um, in the Savio home and in Berlin High School. Christopher Gertzreiter, as he was calling himself by then, began a process of reinvention. He practiced his English and cultivated his appearance. Tight European clothing, long hair, white sunglasses. He said his father was an industrialist, says Savio, something to do with Mercedes. He was fascinated by Gilligan's Island. And then he says that he was particularly fascinated by the character of Thurston Howell III, says Boston Deputy Police Superintendent Thomas Lee, who was referring to the character that you'll remember was played by Jim Backus, who wore like an ascot and was a millionaire, and he had this very weird accent. And so people remember, and they said, quote, I wouldn't make this up. He says that he would mimic Thurston Howell's speech pattern. That's how fascinated he was with the show. So Chris slept on the Savio's couch, and each day when he awoke, he expected his breakfast to be prepared in his clothing laundry. He made it clear that living in this manner was beneath him. The final straw came one afternoon when he refused to get up off the couch to unlock the door for Edward's little sister. We kicked him out, said Savio. And this is when he gave himself a new name. He had become Chris Kenneth Gerhardt by the time that he had left, says Savio. Soon, he was at the University of Wisconsin on the Milwaukee campus where he studied film and where, he told the Savios in a phone call, he planned to vote for Ronald Reagan in the 1980 political presidential election. But you're not an American citizen, one of them (laughs) responded. And to him, he said, not a problem. He would soon have a green card and become a legal resident. So... People who remember him said they were in class together, and this is coming from another person who knew him, Todd Lassa, who's now a writer for Motor Trend. He says he was a witness at Chris Gerhardt's Quickie Courthouse wedding in 1981 when they were both undergraduates. The bride was a woman that he didn't know at all, and they were divorced soon after he got his green card. Several weeks after the wedding, he stopped showing up for his classes. Soon his old friend, Edward Savio, who was living in Los Angeles, got a phone call from the immigrant his family had kicked out of their house. He had just arrived in LA, he said, and wanted to say hello. He was going into the film business. Having mastered English, the young man who now called himself Christopher Chichester, the name stolen according to Savio from one of the teachers he had at Berlin High School, Joan Chichester, was ready to launch his most impressive identity to date. Not in LA, but 18 miles to the east in the wealthy suburb of San Marino. He became a regular at the local business and social clubs where free lunches were served to members, at the prominent churches where weddings were bountiful buffets and were easily crashed, and at the libraries where he could loiter for hours and improve his mind. Soon, with Ivy League clothes, impeccable manners, and an aristocratic accent, he was squiring town's elderly, elderly widows around, enjoying their big houses and their lavish lifestyles. He flashed an oversized calling card embossed with what he claimed was the Chichester family crest, a heron with its wings spread with an eel in its beak. And the family motto, the card read Christopher Chichester, 13th Baronet, San Marino, California. His hairdresser in San Marino remembers, oh, he said he was of royalty in England. Although he was in his 20s, he acted like he was 40. Every time he'd meet a lady, He'd take her hand and kiss it. Chichester employed this charm with not only women, but also men. He could talk about anything: business, politics, society, royalty, especially royalty, because he said he was descended from British royalty, specifically Lord Mountbatten, the British naval officer and the last British viceroy of India. Everyone says that they were impressed by him, that he seemed very important, and they were just like, wow, look at his credentials. Um And it just was very interesting because they just all really seemed to buy into this facade he was putting on. Um, Soon after, he went to San Marino. He became a member of the city club. He was adored by, you know, all the fathers and wives and daughters, including one named Carol Campbell who accepted a lunch date from him. And she was surprised to find that the esteemed nephew of Lord Mountbatten was driving a tan Datsun, in the interior of which was completely plastered with yellow post-it notes to himself. The date turned about turned out to be a round of errands with Chichester talking about himself all day. Like he was from nobility, the second Duke of something, a film producer, remembers Campbell. And I came home and said, Mom, that guy is lying. He's creepy. Good eye. Carol Campbell, because it turns out you were absolutely right. It seems, however, that Carol Campbell was the only person who wasn't fooled. Um, he eventually had his own television show called Inside San Marino. It was public access, but you know he was able to get really the who's who of the area, um, such as Los Angeles luminaries and then Police Chief Daryl Gates to sit down on the cable TV show that very few people even watched. Nine miles down the freeway from San Marino was the University of Southern California with its celebrated film school. Here, Christopher Chichester also became a familiar presence. It seemed that he knew everything and everybody about USC, um, and although no records list Chichester as a student of the film school, he always seemed to have a screenplay from the library under his arm, and he acted as a TA for Arthur Knight's class. um, When this is an, was a, at the time was a prestigious introduction of film course in which guest speakers have included Alfred Hitchcock, Orson Welles, and Clint Eastwood, and it's where all the big stars would come and debut their films and debut their films for the students. He said he was working towards an MFA in film, and he had invited his friends to be guests at parties that were attended by like big name directors like Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, and you know he's telling everybody, oh, I'm getting you passes to these you know multi million-dollar, star-studded events, and then he would. And at the parties, he would know everybody. And, you know, they would look at all of these things and all of the things he was able to garner them, and they were just like, yeah, this is is real. He's real. And so it's with this identity, Christopher Chichester, that it seems that maybe his passion for film noir becomes a part of his real life. This is when we talk about inter John and Linda Sohos. So the town was kind of divided into three. You have Super Marino on the hill with houses that are like $5 billion and up, San Marino on the flats, that's where you have the, doctor, the houses for doctors and professionals and then what they call Submarino where the houses are cheaper for engineers, school teachers and lower income pe- members of the community. Chichester was living squarely in Submarino, rent-free in a guest house behind the main house of Ruth Didi Sohus, known to everyone to be a reclusive alcoholic. So I'm not really even sure how um, he was able to charm her, but he was living in her guest house and I guess running errands for her, but I I imagine she didn't need much but a steady supply of alcohol. So the drama began when Didi's adopted son, John, a man in his 20s who had a lower level job in the computer department um, at a jet propulsion laboratory in Pasadena, moved back in with his mother. He arrived with his wife, Linda, a vivacious redhead and aspiring actress, and they made an odd couple. But everyone in town said that they got to know John well when Dee Dee would bring him in for haircuts and they came with four cats and a horse. So although John and Linda had been married for two years, they were still living with John's mother, Dee Dee Sohouse. However, the most intriguing part of this was that, you know, Christopher was still staying in the guest house and it became a bit strange. In 1985, according to all accounts, John and Linda told friends that they' landed an important job with the US government satellite program. and although they were sworn to secrecy, Linda let it slip to a friend that they were both having to report immediately for duty in New York but that they would return to San Marino in two weeks to pack up their things. Eight weeks later, since there had not been a word from them, Linda's sister called Dee Sohouse for an explanation. So this is where Unsolved Mysteries, one of my favorite shows and a show that actually has caught a lot of criminals. And I think this may be the third time that we mentioned it on this particular podcast um, once before when they were able to help capture John List. And again, when they were able to help bring attention to the fact that um, Busy Bone, had been abducted by his adopted dad or stepdad, and they were able to bring him home. So, Unsolved Mysteries ran a segment on the disappearance um, and deaths of Linda and John Sohouse, because it turns out that they were dead, but we'll get into that shortly. So... Unsolved Mysteries recreated a scene with Didi Dee Dee in a pink house coat with a drink in her hand, grabbing the phone and slurring in a half whisper that John and Linda went to Europe for a top secret mission for the government. She told the police who had been contacted by Linda's family, and she said she had a source. This source was giving her updates on her son and daughter-in-law who except for two postcards purportedly from Linda in postmarked Paris, France, were never heard from again. Five months after the disappearance, DeeDee Sohouse filed a missing persons report on the couple suddenly wise to her so-called source. He's gone too, she told the police, just disappeared. Robert Stack, the host of Unsolved Mysteries, tells the TV audience, quote, according to Dee, the mysterious contact was none other than her guest house tenant, Christopher Chichester. However, he had recently moved, leaving no forward address. The skeletal remains were uncovered, in May of 1994, and immediately questions arose regarding Chichester who, according to a neighbor, had borrowed a chainsaw from him about the time John and Linda were leaving for New York in spite of the fact, Edward Savio says, that he had, quote, never picked up a fucking tool in his life. Investigators interviewed Dana Farrar, who recalled the day that she had accepted Chichester's invitation for a game of Trivial Pursuit. The whole backyard was dug up. What's going on in the yard, Chris, she asked. I'm having some plumbing problems, he said. Along with the human bones, investigators found a flannel shirt and blue jeans, John Soha's standard dress. Um, And then using luminol, they also detected traces of blood on the floor of the guest room that Chichester was, or guest house that Chichester was staying in. But what about Linda? When John and Linda moved back into Dee Dee's house, they discovered the man in the back, Christopher Chichester, says Jan Oldmore. And John now started to put his nose into what Chichester was doing. He sees his mother's condition, and he's thinking that this Chichester maybe is taking money from his mother, so he started to question him. Also, Chichester had his eye on all women, ladies young and old, so right away he must have had his eye on John's wife, Linda, and it might not have taken long for Linda to start liking him, and John didn't take kindly to that. The authorities would like to speak to the young man known as Christopher Chichester, Robert Stack says at the end of the segment about the case. They now know that his real name is Christian Gearstarter, a native of Germany. Before skipping down, Chichester had gone to get a last haircut from his regular stylist. He told her a family member has died in England and I have to go back and take care of the estate. He had gotten all he could out of San Marino, including the pickup truck that belonged to John and Linda. In late 1988, the truck turned up in Greenwich, Connecticut a man calling himself Christopher Crowe had tried unsuccessfully to sell it to the son of a local minister. In the course of the investigation, police discovered that Christopher Chichester and Christopher Crowe were one and the same, but by then, the strange young man had vanished again. In Connecticut, Christopher Crowe gravitated once more into private clubs and older women. At the Indian Harbor Yacht Club in Greenwich, into which he walked pretending to own the place, he struck Peter. Someone who worked at S.N. Phelps & Company, a leading brokerage firm based in Greenwich, soon got the man, a young man an interview with the well-known venture capitalist, Stan Phelps, a graduate of Yale and Harvard Business School, who had trained junk bond king Michael Milken, among others. Phelps hired Crow as a computer whiz, according to fellow employees at the firm. This guy, Christopher Crow, looked like he was worth a million dollars, says the employee. The way he dressed, the way he carried himself, his air always had custom-made shirts with his monogram CCC on the pocket and the Burberry raincoat. He said he was a producer from L.A. who had done all of the Alfred Hitchcock remakes, and if you go back 20 years, there was a Christopher Crow who was a producer. Although he was hired to work on computers, Crow was frequently in the trading room talking about Hitchcock, Hitchcock or more often himself. He would speak about his mother and sister in Paris and show photographs of his mansion in France. The job ended abruptly when someone checked his background through social security numbers he had written on his application. It reportedly came back as the number of David Berkowitz, known as the son of Sam, the serial killer who had haunted New Yorkers in the 70s. Crow was promptly fired, with good reason. Despite having neither a college degree nor any semblance of experience, Crowe is next hired to head of the Department of the U.S. Offices of Nico Securities Limited on Wall Street with an estimated annual base salary of $150,000 per year. Talk about failing up, right? Everyone was flabbergasted, says his former Phelps co-worker. We could not imagine how he got a job he was clearly not capable of handling. He was hired by now-deceased ex-Goldman Sachs executive who quote, was taken by people who seemed to be blue-blooded and wasn't the kind of guy who would necessarily check references, one of Crowe's fellow employees remembers. Nico's Nico's corporate bond department read a July 13, 1987 press release about the company's expansion into selling high-grade bonds and swaps and distribution of securities to initial investors. The apartment with offices in the World Financial Center would consist of five bond salesmen as well as a team of up to 15 traders and analysts. Christopher Crow, who formerly ran the Battenberg Crow Von Wetten Foundation, will lead the endeavor as vice president. The appointment made headlines in The Bond Buyer, the bond industry periodical, which reported that Crow's department was participating in a $250 million. $250 $250 million Chevron Capital deal that came to market yesterday, as well as a $150 Colgate-Palmolive company offering. And the department will work most heavily in long-term industrial sector. Customers like industrials, he said, adding that they had been oversaturated with banks and finance. The staff he led was unimpressed. It was obvious that he had no experience, said one of them, But he certainly knew how to act the part, however, living in a guest dwelling on an estate in Greenwich Greenwich, where he was staying while renovating the main house. He still claimed to be related to Mountbatten and the Battenberg family from Germany, whose name was at the center of his family foundation, which he reportedly said had a collection of Rolls Royces and Italian sports cars. According to another colleague, every every article of clothing from his slippers to pajamas was monogrammed. He was hired as sales manager of corporate bonds, but he had never sold a corporate bond, says Richard Barnett, who was hired by Crow as Nico's director of corporate bond research. He had no idea what he was doing. Fired once again, Crow soon found another responsible position in the Manhattan offices of the prestigious securities firm Kidder Peabody & Co. By then, Connecticut state troopers were searching for him, having received the paperwork on John Sohas's missing truck. Possibly tipped off, Crow quit his new job shortly after starting it on the pretext that his parents were missing in Afghanistan and he had to rush off. When the authorities arrived at his former places of business and his rented guest quarters, Crow was gone. When he next resurfaced, he had grabbed an even higher rung on the ladder to success. As several, after several, as yet uncounted for years about which the authorities hadn't been able to learn much, he devised his greatest persona yet. Clark Rockefeller. Because we've already kind of talked about the psychology of of con men and what makes them so interesting, I didn't want to revisit that particularly, but it did kind of want to put in a segment here. So I think we all find con artists in the art of being a good con artist to be like fascinating, right? And so I think um, Hollywood has also captured this fascination with films like 2001's Heartbreakers, which focuses on a mother and daughter con team played by Sigourney Weaver and Jennifer Love Hewitt, and um, other show, other movies like American Hustle, Catch Me If You Can, and 2015's Focus, in which Will Smith and Margot Robbie portray master manipulators. Unfortunately, the same characters that make them so much fun to watch on screen are the same traits that make them dangerous in real life, and that's that there's a lot of compelling things about con artists, but only when you don't have the misfortune of being in their crosshairs. And I've talked about this book before, but it's wonderful, so if you get a chance, um, you should check it out. It's called The Confidence Game, Why We Fall For It Every Time. And the author is Maria Konnikova, and this examines how human nature drives con artists along with what makes them adept at preying upon others. Um, and she talks about psychological story um, studies and interweaves this with stories of bizarre cons that people actually managed to pull off. And... Here are some facts that I think are interesting about con, ar- con artists and people who become them. Um, and some of these are pulled from excerpts or from ex- are excerpts from and based on Maria The confidence game. So con artists aren't obvious villains, right? In the movies, you know, there's that music sound soundtrack background that's often the weird music. And it's easy to spot someone that feels sketchy, right? They ha- they make an entrance and it's it's dark music, and you and you know immediately that they are the villain. But what makes con artists successful in real life is their ability to present themselves in a way that appeals to their marks in the general public, right? So, one review of nearly 600 cases of company fraud found that about 40% had been considered highly respected by their coworkers. Another very good example of this: um, there, if you have Discovery Plus, um, there is a documentary very good on there called "Fruitcake Fraud," and basically, it was a company. There's a company in Corsicana, Texas, and they are basically the nation's leading distributor and seller of fruitcakes. Well, they had a controller and the controller was embezzling money to the tunes of millions of dollars from these people. And what I found unique about it is that they didn't have any type of outside checks and balances. He handled payroll. He paid all the bills. He did everything. Their controller was the accounts receivable, the accounts payable. He was in charge of like the taxes. So essentially they had no outside company doing audits to make sure everything was up on the up and up. So he was able to defraud this company for years. And because Corsicana is such a small place with a tight knit community, him and his wife were very well respected and Look to be upstanding pillars of the community to everyone around them. So the people he worked with were people that he also socialized with and went to church with. And so he was looked at and deemed to be a trustworthy and upstanding person, even though he was embezzling millions of dollars from these people over the course of almost 10 years it takes the right circumstances to create a con artist. So while psychologists have identified certain traits that seem to predispose people to becoming con artists, like being manipulative, devious, aggressive, it actually seems to take the right set of circumstances for them to actually get into the confidence game. Based on the results of a study on corporate fraud, Konnikova argues that people also need to have opportunity and plausible rationale. What that means essentially is that Even though people will joke about, oh my God, I hate my job. I should start doing fraud or con because I often make this joke. You have to have the opportunity and a plausible rationale. So to me and you who do not do cons, it seems ridiculous past a joke to think, yes, I should now go see how I can defraud the company I work for because I've gained their trust. Or I want to be able to afford a specific lifestyle that I can on the salary. How can I scam my friends and family into paying for this right we don't have the rationale there to make us think that this would be a good idea and that too we'd be able to pull it off with not being able to be caught so it is a very specific set of circumstances uh, ideally or what you could refer to as a perfect storm that allows people to become con artists con artists take advantage of humans inclination to trust Trust is important to human beings because working together has allowed us to evolve more successfully. And it's so vital that higher levels of trust can make us both happier and healthier, according to an Oxford University study. Unfortunately, on the flip side, this can make us vulnerable to people who want to take advantage of us. The irony of it is inescapable, writes Konnikova. Those of us who trust more do better. And those of us who trust more become ideal although unwitting, players in a confidence game. Ideally, the perfect mark. Con artists are masters at reading people. And I mean, this is because you have to be able to gain your mark's trust and pull off a plan, so you have to be able to read others. Um, a good example of this is a really infamous con artist, Ferdinand Waldo Demara, um, And even though he was exposed as being a fraud, he still managed to win people over after the fact. He once scoped out a man that he wanted to write his biography. Well, the man wanted to write his biography, and he began to write into it, like dig into this writer's background, and was scheduling appointments with the writer, but then he wouldn't attend them so that he could just hide and observe the man's behavior. Over time, Damar used the knowledge that he had gained by like watching this person to really gain his trust and convince him that he was reformed and was no longer a con man, and then was able to con this writer out of a great deal of money. Con artists' strength can ultimately be their greatest weaknesses. And what we think of being innocent everyday people as being the most commonly taken advantage of by con artists, the cheats sometimes become the cheated. As Connicove explains it, the supreme confidence of con artists, which is usually a weapon, can ultimately become what leads to their downfalls. Con artists are often the best marks because they think themselves immune, which I think is a very valid point. Um, I was was listening to um, another podcast that I really enjoy. Um, You guys should check it out. It is Scam Goddess with Lacey Mosley. Uh, Shout out to Lacey. Like that show is amazing and always a good time and hilarious. But she was talking about the gentleman whose name I forget. But basically he studied there was a show that used to come on TV, Pressure Luck, and he watched Pressure Luck and was able to memorize the light patterns and able to cheat the game show out of more money than anybody had ever won. But the fascinating thing about that is that he then took the money that he won from the game show and immediately lost a lot of it in like Ponzi schemes and stuff. So he, someone who had been able to con this game show out of, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, lost a great bit of it by being conned by other people. Con artists aren't pathological liars, And I know this goes against everything that we think we know about people being con artists. But The thing is, con artists are willing to disregard the truth, but it's not due to a compulsive need. They differ from pathological liars in this way because they don't lie to form an obsessive compulsive disorder, right? They're not lying for the fuck of it because they have to, because it's a compulsion within them to lie. They have to see if they can lie con artists have lies that are very calculated and strategic and they're only telling the lies with the purpose of moving them plan forward so if you'll notice with most con artists that are very successful they will sprinkle bits of the truth in there but not things that are particularly traceable or things that would stick out or be weird to people while they're lying about other things to move them forward so to say you know i may say if i'm running a con i may tell you that You know, my mother is very ill and, you know, she's not able to help me. And that is why I need money. Um, And the truth of the matter could be that my mom is ill or the truth of the matter could be, you know, that I do need the money. Or it could be that neither of those things is true, but, you know, I tell you something along the lines of about my childhood. You know, I tell you things about how great my mom was growing up and how we used to go to the ice cream parlor every Saturday and how I'd really be able to use, you know, be able to repay her for my wonderful childhood by using this money to get her, her, you know, some pinky toe surgery that she really needs whatever the con is i know that sounds ridiculous but just making up something in the moment right so i may not necessarily be lying about my mom and going to have ice cream every saturday but i'm certainly lying to you about her being ill and needing money but by saying to by by sprinkling pieces of the truth in there, I'm making it so that you trust me, but I'm also telling enough lies that are calculated enough to pull on your heartstrings, but then also move my plan forward to grift you out of money. Con artists benefit from technological advances. And I think this one is really interesting to me because we always think about the fact that before we had all this technology, it was a lot easier to get away with crime. And we would think that with the technology, it would be, easier for people to then catch you for crimes. and The truth is, that's not necessarily the case. Konkova points this out in her book, and she says the consumer fraud in the United States is climbing increasingly by 60% since 2008. And I think what is indicative of this is, is we all are very connected now, right? So people have more access to your information because it's on the web. And then we think about it as... As time has moved forward, no one is going to believe you if you call my phone, my home phone and try to scam me that way. But people will believe you if you are coming to them as a friend through Facebook or if you are, you know, texting them or you're calling them pretending to be their bank. Because we, we all get those notices and emails or text messages saying this is your code to log in. Don't share it with anybody. We'll never call you and ask for your information. Right. And they have to remind people of these things because technology has gotten better and advanced. So have criminals. They've gotten a lot better and they've become very tech savvy because it's the easiest way to do things. And it's quick. I can have your information in five minutes over the Internet and then disappear, you know, into the abyss of the web where before, you know, I had to be in person or near you. And it was very, it wasn't hard to get away with these things, but it was certainly less easy than it is now. So to quote Frank Abingale, the man who inspired the movie Catch Me If You Can, he said, quote, "'What I did 50 years ago as a teenage boy is 4,000 times easier to do today because of technology. Technology breeds crime. It always has, and it always will." End quote. And the last part, most people that do cons get away with them. And I know this goes against our idea of, you know, crime and punishment and law and order. And it's commonly believed that only foolish people get conned. And that's not true. It's understanding. And with that, it's understandable that people are often unwilling to admit that they've fallen victim to a con artist. They're embarrassed. Think about the times that you've maybe loaned somebody money and they didn't pay you back or maybe you really liked someone and then they ghosted you and then you just kind of take those small things that are just mildly embarrassing to the grave, right? So think about you being conned out of thousands or even millions of dollars or something important to you or you're when people commit art fraud. You are a you know leading person in the art world and you're supposed to be the the expert on whether or not something's fake or real. And then someone's been able to pass off fakes under your nose, it's embarrassing. So you don't tell anybody because then you have to admit that someone who thinks, you know, a normal person who was of normal or greater than normal intelligence was fooled and tricked out of something that they shouldn't have been able to be tricked out of. So con artists prey on this fact that people will be embarrassed if the con is found out and they won't say anything. And that is very valuable to con artists because people don't want to admit that they're victims. Most con artists don't ever go, don't ever go to trial because they aren't being brought to the authorities to begin with. And I hope that clears up some facts about con artists. Again, I didn't want to do the psychology again, but I just want to talk about some things that I found to be interesting. So I hope you found them interesting as well. So let's get back to the story. When we last left off, Chris Crow had skipped Connecticut and um, slipped into his new uh, human suit as Clark Rockefeller. And for this new life, he would need money and not a lot, but a, a fair amount. And some say he had hoarded his $150,000 a year, not included bonuses um, of his Wall Street salary. Others point to a statement he made later that he had been given his new name, Clark Rockefeller, by Harry Copeland, his godfather, who died in the late 1900s. In the I said 1900s, 1990s. (laughs) So Copeland was a New York businessman, and he happened to be um, a fixture at the Belmont Park racetrack on Long Island. And uh, people speculate that Rockefeller made money betting on ponies, but according to his lawyer, he never had a substantial amount of money to change his life until he met his wife, Sandra Boss. But friends insist that he had cash as well as credit cards emblazoned with the name Rockefeller. With his smart wardrobe and Eastern prep school accent, he was ready to begin the greatest act of his lifetime. Naturally, there was only one place to unveil this new masterpiece, New York City. Moving into an apartment on 400 East 57th Street, he determined never to set foot in Connecticut again. He told his friends it was because his parents had been killed there. He was so adamant about this that he once threw a fit when he realized that the car he was in was about to cross the state line. Before they crossed the border into Connecticut, Clark made everybody stop and use the bathroom and he wouldn't let us stop at all after that, says one friend. As they entered the state, Rockefeller allegedly turned up his collar, put on a hat and hunkered down low in the seat. Connecticut, California, Wisconsin, and Germany were all far behind him now. That is a lot of places to not want to go back to. I think we all have places that we just would rather not revisit, but to imagine the fact that like, there are three whole states and a country that you are actively and actively avoiding because you're not really welcome there is a little insane. But Again, this entire story is a bit insane, so it seems part of the course, right? He began to be known in Manhattan in late 1992 or 1993, proudly displaying two of his credentials that are catnip to that crowd a fancy dog, a Gordon setter named Yates, and nothing sparks conversation between vast strangers faster than a walk dog, and a major collection of modern art. Once again, he gained entry into the higher echelons through church, in this case, St. Thomas Church on Fifth Avenue, the epicenter of Manhattan Episcopalianism. He intimidated that he was from the Percy Rockefeller branch of the clan, not the John D. ultra-rich, but plenty-rich, one friend remembers, and he cleverly, cleverly cast himself as properly eccentric, paranoid about security, walking around with a radio device that he claimed was connected to a security office to which he regularly had to report his whereabouts. Thus, questions about his background could be dismissed as plebeian probes, in World, you were always trying to find out how rich he was because once he'd established how maniacally private he was, he could take the position that he could decline questions that impinged on this privacy. He told me his work was solving third world debt, particularly in the Pacific Rim, says art dealer Martha Henry, president of Martha Henry, Inc. Fine Art, who met Rockefeller when he moved into the apartment next to hers. Her door abutted his, she says, adding, I left mine ajar a lot and she said her neurotic, paranoid, and odd neighbor soon became her friend. He told her about his parents' death in a car accident when he was 16, just before he went off to Harvard. He also learned that he never ate in restaurants because you can't trust the kitchen. This means that his diet consisted mainly of cucumber and watercress tea sandwiches, only a pepper's Farm bread with the crust removed, Peppers Farm's cookies, preferably the Nantucket variety, and his favorite root, Food was haggis, the Scottish dish, and his drink of choice was Harvey's Bristol Cream Sherry. You just think, oh well, he's a Rockefeller. He's eccentric," said Henry. One day she asked, he asked if she could help him determine the value of some paintings he had inherited. "Okay, Clark, tell me the names of the of the artists," Henry responded. To which Clark said, "Well, I've got a Jackson Pollock, a Mondrian, somebody named Rothko, and I think Twombly or something," he said, mispronouncing the names. The art dealer cut him short and rushed over. Doing the math, she remembers as she stared at what she estimated to be a multi-million dollar collection, haphazardly hung on the walls and sitting on the floor. Rockefeller would later give several estimates of the collection's value, telling Dateline, for instance, that it was worth $1 billion. He said he had inherited them from his great-aunt Blanche, who started a little old museum on 53rd Street. This would be the Museum of Modern Art, and she was the benefactor and widow of John D. Rockefeller III. It all made sense, says Henry. Blanchette Rockefeller died in 1992, so there could have been an estate settled, and I thought, he is a Rockefeller. What else could he be? She also thought about a $300,000 Adolf Goffleb from Connell and Company, the esteemed Upper East Side Gallery, which would be a prudent addition to his collection. But when they got to the nodler, Rockefeller balked. I don't buy pictures with green in them, he said. Later, Rockefeller enlisted Henry's help in finding a larger apartment. She she suggested Alwyn Court, the the turn-of-the-century building with the most intricate terracotta facade in the city. Oh, I would never live there, said Rockefeller. It's dreary and depressing. Besides, he told her, he had to rent in a Cushman and Wakefield building because those are family buildings, Rockefeller buildings, and I can get very low rent. He needed a spacious place, he told Henry, and plenty of room for his art and his Gordon setter, and oh yes, his bride. He was getting married, he said, and the lucky girl was named Sandra Mills Boss. Among all the people Clark Rockefeller met at St. Thomas Church, Julia Boss would turn out to be the critical key to his future. She was smart, stylish, attractive, and engaged to be married. But she had a twin sister named Sandra, a Stanford graduate who was attending Harvard Business School for her MBA. Would Clark like to meet her? Of course, he said. In fact, he would like to throw a party for her in his apartment. It would be a clue party based on the board game in which players are guests at a mansion who try to determine which one of them killed Mr. Body, their billionaire host. Rockefeller instructed each guest guest to come costume as a character from the game and to tell the doorman they were there to see Mr. Body. Rockefeller played the role of Professor Plum, a Harvard archaeologist who always becomes uncomfortable when asked about his past. Sandra Boss came as Miss Scarlett, the thin, fatale Hollywood actress whose career is in shambles and whose desire to marry rich brought her to Body Mansion. Immediately, Professor Plum and Miss Scarlett were attracted to each other, initially through their mutual love of business and their admiration of each other's intelligence. In addition, friends say Sandra fell in love with Clark because he made her laugh. Like Rockefeller, Sandra Boss was on her own journey of reinvention. Her father was a Boeing engineer, and she'd grown up middle class in Seattle in a nice two-story Cape Cod house with a finished basement, a friend says. There she started to develop what would become her defining trait. She is one of the most competitive people I know, says the friend, adding that she competed most doggedly against her fraternal twin, Julia. Julia and Sandra are the only sibling merit scholars from this area, read a 1985 article in the Seattle Times. They've never spent more than three days apart. Nonetheless, when Julia announced, I want to go to Yale, Sandra replied, okay, I want to go to Stanford. As Sandra moved through increasingly impressive jobs, an elite private equity program that that attracted the best and brightest to a Dallas real estate giant, a position in debt marketing with Merrill Lynch, people found her sharp but shy, eager for success, but... Socially, on the outside, looking in. And when she met the enigmatic young man in Clark Rockefeller, she fell in love with him. He was, she told friends, the brightest man she'd ever met. He knew the works of obscure 20th century novelists she loved, spoke several languages fluently. He was charming, witty, and worldly, and had once been rich, he said, before his late father's fortune had been wiped out by a lawsuit. She loved the fact that he wasn't concerned with material wealth not only he not only did he share her altruistic passion for setting up nonprofits and development but he also worked in debt restructuring for emerging nations soon his primary occupation was being the perfect man for Sandra boss so i will pause here and just make a mention of this when it comes to con artists they absolutely will ask you things about yourself and i think we all do that thing where we are just so impressed when someone doesn't talk about themselves but asks us a lot of questions about ourselves upon first meeting them. The trouble with that is is that a lot of times con artists will ask you all these things and then they will become exactly the person that you want or need them to be in that time so that they're able to take advantage of you. They essentially like I said slip into a skin or a mask of whatever the perfect person in your mind is because they picked your brain for all of this information. And then they simply become that in order to trick you. So Clark asked Sandra to marry him and they get married in a church in Maine and they announced their engagement. Clark said his parents, his mother was the child star Anne Carter, known for her starring role opposite Humphrey Bogart in the two Mrs. Carols, had both died in a car crash um this is a clear reference some say to the fatal december 1979 car crash in darien connecticut of avery rockefeller jr a descendant of john d rockefeller however other rockefellers were due to attend a nuptials. the groom told everyone but at the last minute a problem arose and he disinvited them not to worry sandra will meet them all in the future he said until then his dog yates named for the british novelist edmund Hodgson yates would serve as best dog then there was the matter of the paperwork if you want to have a marriage where you don't have to deal with legal stuff, Quaker is the way to go, says a friend. Sandra had signed all the necessary marriage documents, entrusting the task of filing them to her husband. He never did. Not only did they not have a license, I don't believe they had a marriage certificate, said Rockefeller's lawyer, who insists the marriage wasn't valid. As they settled into married life in New York and Nantucket, Rockefeller ran Asterisk LLP, advising third world countries on their finances. He didn't make any money in the job, he explained, because the nations were dirt poor, charging them a consulting fee would be unconscious. While it is now clear that his job was a sham, Sandra actually had a real career going. After she graduated Harvard Business School, she accepted a position with McKinsey & Company, the ultra-discreet consulting firm which advises the world's leading businesses, governments, and institutions, and whose staff has included former CIA operatives and future Enron executives. I don't know that the Enron executive part is such a good spin on where she was working, but nonetheless, people say Sandra was happy with Clark. Um, Even if she had doubts about who he was, she didn't express them at the same time, she was busy moving up the McKinsey corporate ladder, and she was leading the company's work for New York Senator Charles Schumer and Mayor Michael Bloomberg regarding global competitiveness of New York and the U.S. financial services, for instance, which Rockefeller would later claim was partially owing to the unspoken influence of his name, whether it was to her advantage, as he told The Today Show after his capture. She usually did so in a very understanding way, calling special attention to it by way of keeping it quiet. Sort of the pss- she's married to a Rockefeller. She's the youngest woman ever to be elected to the director of the McKinsey & Company, and many of her colleagues who were friendly believed it had a lot to do with me and my name, Clark is quoted as saying. A friend adds, everybody knew she was married to a Rockefeller, and she could be all modest about it and act like she didn't care, but she cared. Through her spokesperson, Sandra Boss insists that she never used her husband's name to advance her professional standing. And I seem to, I tend to believe this, right? Like. I think that she was one of those people who was very competitive. She seemed like she was a rising star at a very young age. So even though part of me would like to believe that maybe she was using his name to gain a leg up and a competitive advantage, really it didn't do anything for her because Sandra is a woman, albeit a white woman. She's a woman, and very often it is hard for women to climb those letters, climb those types of ladders and get to those types of echelons in these companies, especially when there's a white man readily available to take the place over her. So I think even though being married to a Rockefeller may have helped Sandra, even though she was very modest about it, I certainly think that Sandra got a lot of these positions and got to where she was mostly through her own merits. So I agree with Sandra there. Their apartment at 55th Street and 6th Avenue was a showcase for art. The furnishings were minimal, and Clark's dog was given free reign. Um, We celebrated our first art purchase, a large painting by Rothko on a cold New York City afternoon, Sandra wrote. Our dealer and a Rothko expert had just arrived at our apartment when Yates, our 85-pound Gordon Setter, returned from his walk, jumped on his usual spot on the sofa, and shook his head. A four-inch long swath of saliva emerged from his mouth. Naturally, it landed on the Rothko, and the art expert carefully wiped it off with a paper towel. Sandra wrote that the incident was evidence of her husband's insistence that fine art and purebred dogs could live together harmoniously despite their quote, slight incompatibilities. I think that slight is doing a lot of heavy lifting here. So, Sandra and Clark were similarly different, yet compatible, at least in the beginning. They were both very stiff and very formal. Um, She was awkward in the same way that he was. um, And they would go to dinner at other places, private clubs. um, And Sandra just was a very quiet woman, and she would just say his name with two syllables. Clark, and he would say, Sandra, their friend wasn't impressed. Honestly, I think the people around them were repulsed by the name dropping and the excessive wealth, and they really weren't people that you wanted to be around. They weren't warm. I think other people were excited to be with the Rockefeller. It didn't matter how awkward it was to be with them, if it was worth it because they were Rockefellers. Among the friends, questions increasingly arose as to this mysterious man's background. The grandiose career, the silk outscots, the museum quality art collection, We're all too much for some. It was like a parlor game. Hey, what do you think Real Clark's real story is, says one. I think Sandra wanted to believe him. I think that she really wanted to believe in him. I asked her about it once. I said, how do you know he's really Clark Rockefeller and not some axe murderer on the lam? He's my fiance, she said. I think that he would tell me more about his past than he would tell you. As her position at McKenzie grew, Sandra was away from her husband more and more, which left him plenty of time to walk gates in Central Park, where he would later said that my dog was very much in love with Amelia, Henry Kissinger's dog. Broadway producer Jeffrey Richard crossed paths with Rockefeller while walking his dog through the park one day. They got to talking, and Richard told him he was producing a new play by David Ives, who had written All in the Timing. Rockefeller exclaimed, I've seen that play six times, and he hinted that he might like to become a backer on Ives' play. It would look quite wonderful to have a Rockefeller on one's resume, says Richards, who arranged to meet with his new potential investor and in Ives, after which Rockefeller offered the playwright a ride on his private jet. However, neither the jet nor the investment never ever materialized. You're walking a dog with a Rockefeller? Wow! said noted New York-based artist William Quigley, whose work is collected by politicians, entertainers, and business leaders, asked he asked a friend one day. Not only is it Rockefeller, the friend replied, but he loves your work. Within a month, Quigley was summoned to Rockefeller's apartment, where he was staggered by his collection of modern art. The connoisseur promptly promised to buy some of Quigley's paintings and told him he wanted to introduce him to a great friend of his, one of the world's foremost dealers. First, however, came a series of lunches and dinners, usually at the Lotus, where Clark would exclaim, let's have the Oysters Rockefeller. Once the dish of Oysters Baked and finished, arrived, he said in his East Coast Lockjaw, Quigley, do you know why they call them Oysters Rockefeller? No, the artist answered. To which Clark replied, because they're green. Sometimes Sandra would join them, but not often because she was usually at work. As time went on, Rockefeller hadn't purchased a Quigley painting. They were then selling for approximately $10,000, and he wanted to ensure that others did it. Did by enlisting Larry Gosgian to represent the artist. Some people are after that guy, and he never calls back. With me, he calls too much. None of Rockefeller's new friends, who include a respected female Park Avenue physician and a top Japanese female executive at Moody Investor Services, probed too deeply into the stories he told them. They were all too content to bask in his glow. He came up to the house and said that his great-uncle had founded the University of Chicago, says the husband of one spitting friend. I looked it up. John D. Rockefeller was the founder of the university. He didn't say he was a descendant of John D., but John D.'s brother. He had on a University of Chicago tie. At the end of 1998, Rockefeller sent out a mass email to his growing circle First I must tell you why you have not heard from me. While I'm in a meeting at the UN Friday before Labor Day, I stared at some papers dele- that a delegate handed to me. I remembered nothing until I woke up in a New York hospital 5 hours later. The hospital discharged me shortly afterwards and the doctors told me I was suffering from severe exhaustion, in short a, bu- a burnout, short, in short a burnout. The obvious cause, too many 19-hour days. During June, July, and August, I generated 1,085 billable hours, about 400 hours more than persons in comparable working situations. On the advice of my doctor, I've decided to change my lifestyle. My plan, I will take a sabbatical for my work and go stay at my cousin's villa. Soon, stresses arose in his marriage. He was controlling, difficult, and paranoid. And in early 2000, Sandra left him, having enough of what David Deacon, the assistant district attorney in Boston, called his emotional and occasional physical abuse. But he eventually wooed her back. He became the old clerk again, and during this period, she became pregnant. Determined to keep the marriage together for the sake of their unborn child, she resolved to work things out. One day, he came home to say he'd had an unpleasant altercation with a woman in Central Park while walking the dog. So the police came to the apartment to speak to Rockefeller about the incident. Shortly after that, he announced that he didn't want to live in Manhattan anymore. We're moving to New Hampshire, he said. Sandra Boss paid $750,000 for Doveridge, the former estate of the U.S. jurist Leonard Hand and the artist Thomas and Maria Dewing. Rockefeller, Rockefeller immediately embarked on extensive restoration, restoration, taking down to the studs and digging up the backyard for a swimming pool. While Sandra was away on business, he began making quite the splash with welcome parties and a string of famous people that he met with a sweater tied around his neck and maybe an ascot because that was Clark Rockefeller as he let everyone know. My name is Clark Rockefeller and I can put an injunction on your little book, he told Anna Gilbert, the director of the Cornish Colony Museum, who wanted to include pictures of Doveridge in a place of beauty about the homes and gardens of Cornish artists. He later sent me an email saying, I work for the U.S. Defense Department and I cannot have it known where I live, Gilbert remembers. Rockefeller eventually backed down when I informed him that my publisher was in California, Gilbert says, adding that she now realizes that the relevance California had for Rockefeller. But then he had turned Doverge into a construction site, keeping his art and storage tubes and a collection of Rockefeller memorabilia, pendants, neckties, campaign bumper stickers, Things I've had most of my life in his upstairs office, all of which he would show off to visitors. The most important change in Clark Rockefeller's life came on May 23, 2001, when Sandra Boss went into labor. A friend drove Clark and Sandra to Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center, where the following day, Ray Storrow Mills Rockefeller was born. With her arrival on the scene, Rockefeller required an anchor, the one person he couldn't cheat, con, or escape. The one real thing in his life was his daughter and his love for her. Everything else was a fraud, says Boston Deputy Police and Superintendent Thomas Lee. As people remember it, Clark was very devoted to snooks, says John Sears. They would stroll for Beacon Hill, they would dine together, they would read books for hours on end carefree child, whose favorite book and movie was The Little Princess, was so happy that she could literally hop or skip every fifth step, and forever at her side or carrying her on his shoulders was the adoring father, Clark Rockefeller. I love you too much, Daddy, Snooks would often say. He probably loved her too much as well, perhaps at least too much for discipline. At a parent-teacher conference, Clark and Sandra met with school administrators to discuss how Snooks was acting in class, but he refused to take any advice. When the couple returned home, according to friends, Sandra confronted him. She may not have questioned his identity, but she vehemently disagreed with his ideas on how they should raise their daughter. She went off on a business trip, and a short time after she left, Clark was served with the divorce papers, says a close friend. He said that he was in complete shock. The divorce and custody battle were extremely contentious, with Sandra living at the Boston Ritz, Rockefeller moving in with European friends a few blocks away, and Snooks shuttling between the two. Sandra was the money that allowed him to have the antique cars, the artwork, the clubs, and when she pulled the plug on it, he was incredibly distraught, says a Southfield parent. Financially cut off by his wife, Rockefeller asked people to buy back the antique cars they'd sold him. He even tried to sell some of his art, and as a final indignity, he had to resign from the clubs that he was a part of. He told friends that his wife had bled him of his riches. He told me, Sandy only wanted my money. She married me because I'm a Rockefeller. Now she wants everything says the Art dealer Sheldon Fish. He said he was going to interview every high-powered attorney in Boston so Sandra wouldn't be able to hire any of them because of the conflict of interest restrictions. But she did get a lawyer, a good one. And once the divorce was underway, her father, William Boss decided to investigate his son-in-law since he and the other members of the family had come to suspect that Clark was either siphoning money off from Sandra or hiding Rockefeller money from her. First, Boss went on Wikipedia website to check out the Rockefeller's late mother, Ann Carter, the former child star who had supposedly died in a car wreck. According to Wikipedia, Ann Carter was very much alive. And the deeper Boss dug, the more inconsistencies he found, and he reported them all to Sandra. Finally, she saw the light. If Clark had lied about his mother, what else had he lied about? She hired a private investigator to find out who her husband really was. From that point forward, Rockefeller, unwilling to risk exposing his past and unable to produce documentation to prove his current identity, never stood a chance. Sandra Boss got everything, the historic house and the church in Cornish as well as the townhouse in Beacon Hill. She also won custody of Snooks, and the judge approved her request to take the child with her to London, where she now lives in Knightsbridge, limiting the doting father to only three court-supervised visits per year. On the day of the hearing, he sent a text message, that said, I've just signed the Treaty of Versailles. In a, it was a few days before Christmas, and he lost the case, at John Green. He gave up his rights to his kid in return for $800,000, plus there would be no due diligence. Quote, that is no investigation of his true identity. We were in here at Starbucks, and his kid was gone, legally taken by his ex-wife to London. I think he took the money from her and then had regrets. I think the moment he took that money, he started his plan on how he would get his daughter back. And this leads us to Chip Smith, his last and final alias. He told me he had spent $800,000 on the custody fight and also had to pay Sandra's attorney fees of $1.2 million and he was completely broke and was going to have to start looking for a job, which I found funny because he had never mentioned having to have a job before, says one friend. He called me and said, I don't have anything. I had to give Sandy all the paintings and I'm broke. I'm down to my last $2 million, says Sheldon Fish. The truth is, he was down to his last 800000 The sum he had gotten from his wife in the divorce settlement. There's nothing going on there for Clark, says Noreen Gleason of the FBI. There aren't any jobs. There isn't any money coming in. He's one big con. He's getting money because he's married to it. He She was the breadwinner. I may have a nervous breakdown, he once wrote in an email, and if there ever really happened in a the divorce, there'd be no more snooks and no more clubs. So, in Christmas and he wore his green pants embroidered with candy canes to a yuletide celebration with William Quigley and his family. But his mood was far from festive. he had fought for Snooks with every ounce of energy he had, he told Quigley. He kept saying, I just miss her so much. He was completely devastated and ripped apart. You see, the thing with children is... Like I said earlier, Snooks provided an anchor. So now Clark was stuck being Clark Rockefeller because that's who his ex-wife and his child knew him as. And normally he would have moved onward and upward into a new life and a more elaborate ruse, but he was hopelessly frozen in his identity as a caring father. And on July 27th, in the midst of a long and lonely summer, he snatched his beloved Snooks off the street in Boston and launched his carefully orchestrated plan, leading to what quickly grew into a 20 officer FBI and Boston police task force on a five day goose chase. Eventually, invest- investigators got a break. A real estate agent in Baltimore recognized Rockefeller's picture on television and called the FBI. The agent said that he had sold someone resembling the man on the wanted poster a carriage house on Ploy Street in Baltimore for, $4, for $430,000, which the man had paid for the previous week with cashier's checks. The agent said the buyer, identifying himself as Chip Smith and his daughter as Muffy, was a single parent and a ship's captain, and he was relocating from Chile. Maureen Gleason got the news in Boston at 1 a.m., and one hour later, a team of investigators had surrounded the house on Ploy Street. Through the windows, they could see an open case of Sherry and paintings leaning against the walls, but they could detect no movement inside, which Gleason, knowing Rockefeller to be an insomniac who often worked his computer throughout the night, thought was a bad sign. We'd gone down so many avenues, and we were afraid that maybe he had been there and left, she said. Since their first priority was getting Snooks to safety, they decided to try to trap the fugitive Clark Rockefeller in a way that would be worthy of the name. We wanted her to remain inside the house, but we wanted him to come out." And that's where the ruse came in. So the plan to bring down Clark Rockefeller was relatively ingenious. Um, they had discovered his his yacht through the investigation, which, I mean, if you could call it that, it was a rundown 26-foot stiletto catamaran, which he kept docked in a Baltimore marina about two miles away from the carriage house. Um, through the window of the boat, they were able to see a file labeled Chip Smith, presumably the plans for the new identity he was setting up. So they knew they had their man. They got the manager of the marina to call rockefeller on his cell phone and say that his boat was taking on water i'll be right there he said investigators saw movement in the house and soon clark walked outside hey clark a plain coast agent called rockefeller turned around where you going clark asked the agent clark replied i'm going to get a turkey sandwich he said that would be the last lie he told before 20 agents with assault rifles wrestled him to the ground while others stormed the house and got the little girl Back in Boston, Noreen Gleason told Sandra Boss that her daughter was safe and her ex-husband was in custody. She literally collapsed, said Gleason. After she was revived and had spoken on the phone to her daughter, Sandra turned to the agents and asked the question on everyone's minds. Who is he? Well, to answer that, I mean, there's a lot of answers, but He's a mystery man, a cipher, a spinner of stories, literally so numerous and varied that they are proving to be difficult to keep track of even using a database, said Assistant District Attorney Deegan during Rockefeller's bail hearing. He went to court for these charges, not soon after being arrested, um, and through jailhouse interviews with many different reporters, they were still unable to kind of get to the bottom of who he actually was. And I don't think really that we ever will. He's been so many people for so long. So in 2009, um, Garstrider's attorneys filed notice that they intended to use an insanity defense for him when, um, when the trial started. So two defense experts testified that he had been diagnosed with delusional disorder, grandiose type narcissistic personality disorder. And these are traits that are commonly associated with someone being a con artist. Um, But James Chu, the psychiatrist for the prosecution, testified that he had also diagnosed Gerstrider with um, a bevy of things—mixed personality disorder and narcissistic and antisocial traits—but also felt that Gerstrider had exaggerated his symptoms of mental illness and was capable of knowing right from wrong. He noted that the defendant had allegedly meticulously planned the details of the abduction of his daughter well in advance. Gerstrider did not take the witness stand. What he did say, however, that was the reason that they had even planned this insanity defense is that his defense team told jurors that he believed his daughter, Snooks, had communicated with him telepathically from London, where she and her mother had moved after the divorce, begging him to rescue her. Obviously, that's probably not the case. Closing arguments for this kidnapping trial were June 8th, and on June 12th of 2009, he was convicted of kidnapping his seven-year-old daughter, as well as one count of assault and battery with a dangerous weapon for ordering his getaway driver to pull away even while his daughter's social worker was hanging onto the vehicle. He was acquitted of second assault, second degree batteries. Dec- la 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 la. He was acquitted of second assault of the second assault charge, as well as giving a false name to the police. The judge sentenced him to four to five years in the state prison on the kidnapping count and a concurrent two to three years on the assault charge. In 2009, a grand jury was convened to examine the evidence in the Sohas case. On March 15th of 2011, prosecutors in Los Angeles County charged Gerstrider with the murder of Jonathan Sohas. On January 24th of 2012, Judge Jarrett Moses of the Los Angeles County Superior Court ruled that Gerstrader must stand trial for the death of Sohas. This murder trial was held in March and April of 2013, and Gerstrider was convicted of first-degree murder on April 10th of 2013. The verdict included an enhancement for use of a deadly weapon to bludgeon Jonathan Sowhouse to death. Evidence in this case was largely circumstantial, but jurors were most swayed by two plastic book bags found buried with Sowhouse’s remains. One from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, where Gerstrider attended classes between 1979 and 1982, and one from the University of Southern California, where Gerstrider was auditing film classes. One juror said that this was the most solid piece of evidence presented to the jury. Jurors also heard evidence that Gerstrider was in possession of the Sohaus's pickup truck following the murder. Now, I would say that is probably the most solid piece of evidence, but what do I know? On August 15th, 2013, Christian Gerstrider was given a maximum sentence of 27 years to life with credit for one year served after his sentence in Massachusetts. After being convicted, Gerstrider fired his lawyers and represented himself during the sentencing phase. He maintained his innocence during the sentencing and said that he believed that John's wife killed him and once again, he didn't feel like that he should be in jail. His sentence was reduced on appeal in 2015 to 26 years to life, um, and with good time credits, he would be eligible for parole in December of 2029 when he will be 68 years old. He has a parole hearing scheduled for November of 2028. Um, His state appeals... um, were exhausted. He had one in 2015 and one in 2016. He still has federal appeals pending, and as of December of 2016, he was languishing in San Quentin State Prison, serving his time. If you like to read more about this and learn more about this, it actually kind of has been (laughs) done quite a bit, but I still find it to be very interesting. There's a very good book that you can read, um, and that is by Mark Seal, It is, excuse me, so there is a book by Mark Seal called The Man in the Rockefeller Suit that you can read, and there's also a Very Good Vanity Fair article also by Mark Seal by the same name. Um, Additionally, there is a documentary that is very, very well done called My Friend Rockefeller that I think is still playing on either Hulu or Netflix that you can also check out. Um, I found all of these sources very, very helpful in getting together this information. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Guys, that is the story of Clark Rockefeller, um, who's also Chip Smith, who was also Christopher T. Chester, who was also, uh, Chris Crow, um, who was also a man who couldn't go back to California, Wisconsin or Connecticut or Germany. Um, So yeah, that is that. This one was a little bit different because there really wasn't a lot of discussion about murder. Um, This was more certainly about the interesting parts of being a serial con person for 30 years. Uh, But I enjoyed talking about it nonetheless. Um, You guys can find me Um, on the socials it's at vj underscore burton if you'd like to talk to me personally the show's twitter is at murder v pod and it is at murder v pod on instagram as well if you'd like to follow us there as always i ask you if you have options Apple Podcast to rate, review, and subscribe. I'd really appreciate your support. Um, you can tell me if it's good, bad, you liked it, you hate it. I want to hear from you. It doesn't matter. Um, I always take uh show suggestions or cases that you would like to hear me cover. So if you have something you would really like to see me cover, please let me know. Um I welcome your input. Um, and of course, I will give you a shout out on the show if we do a case, well, if I do a case that you suggest, that's why I always love to hear from the True Crime Tribe. Um, Trying to get merch together for you guys, nothing amazing, just maybe like a couple of t-shirts and mugs so that you can kind of show your support, but that we can all recognize ourselves as True Crime Tribe. I think True Crime, (laughs) tongue twister, True Crime Tribe. I thank you all for being here with me. I hope you enjoy the show. We're going to pick up next week since this is Black History Month. We're going to do some different stories. um, And then in March, we'll pick back up with more, I guess, for lack of a better tactful way of putting it, um, non Black centered white stories with Susan Cox Powell. Um, But in the meantime, we are going to cover Yahweh Ben Yahweh. In um, the cult where may, I'm also going to try to cover Marcus Weston and the Vampire Clan. Um, and then um, look to do um, one other one. And I'm not entirely sure. I think it's going to be um, Anthony Sowell Saul, Saul is what I think I'm going to do next. We shall see. I'm not entirely sure about the order. But that should finish us out through February. Um, and I hope to see you guys back here every week. Sorry, the episode was out on a Thursday and not a Tuesday. But while trying to do better on the heels of getting out of the holiday and just trying to get back on track. I love you guys. Thank you so much for the support. Again, like, rate, review, subscribe, and you can listen to the show anywhere that you find Dope Podcast. Special thanks, and I keep forgetting to say this, but cover art is done by me, Vermeek Burton, or V, if you'd like to call me, and our lovely um, intro music is done by Card. Card Our lovely intro music is done by Cordero Johnson. CJ, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Um, I apparently have dry mouth, and that's why I'm tongue twisted and can't talk, which means it's probably time for me to go to bed, guys. And with that, you have been listening to Murder Be Wrote. And as always, I am your host, V.